Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling Sufficient Grace. What I want you to see through the message this morning is the grace that saves us and the grace that amazes us, and we sang about it this morning, is the very same grace that encircles us with eternal life. That's because it's an all-encompassing and all-sufficient grace. Whether we find ourselves on the highest mountain or we find ourselves in the lowest valley, there is a sufficient grace that has been made available for us so that like the little shepherd boy David, we can have the same confidence that he spoke of in Psalm chapter 23 and verse 4 when he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He said, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. When David said uh, that he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he's not talking about some sort of deep ravine in the Amazon rainforest. David was literally talking about, when you look this up, it literally means death. It means the grave. That is the confidence that is building in my heart that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he said, I will fear no evil. Why? Look at those words. He says, for thou art with me. Thou art with me. And then he said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And David had this revelation that he had been encircled with an everlasting life, that somehow he had this revelation that God had wrapped his arms around him and was keeping him. David went on to say in Psalm 139, verse 8, he said, If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. David said, If I go up into heaven, thou art there. And then he said, If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. The very same thing he said about heaven. He said, Man, if I really mess it up. He said, If I make my bed, not if you make it for me. He said, If I make my bed in hell, he said, Behold, thou art there. David was essentially saying, let's look at the two extremes. Let's go as far north as you can go, and let's go as far south as you can go. And I believe he was saying, you know what? I would expect to run into God if I was in heaven. <laughs> that just makes sense, doesn't it? David said, if I go to heaven, he said, I see you there, God. He's saying, I would expect to see you in heaven, but only sufficient grace would show up in bed with me in the hell of my own making. Only sufficient grace would show up with me in that bed. David continued his thought in Psalm 23, verse 6, when he said, Surely goodness and mercy. I want you to notice that word mercy right there. It is the Hebrew word chesed. It literally means the grace of God. David said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you notice David is using some long-range verbiage here, isn't he? He's got an eternal perspective under an old covenant. I find that quite amazing. He said, goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? <laughs> Forever! Psalm 139, verse 8, If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? That's a radical statement is what he's saying. How could David say something like that? I'll tell you how he could say something like that. We're in verse 8, aren't we? 
Let's back up three verses here into verse 5. He said, you have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. You have put a circle around me. I believe it's God's arms, to be honest with you. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. Friends, I want you to know, when the Bible talks about God encircling us, it means literally a protective environment. And listen to me carefully, because a protective environment without the hand of God on you is just a prison. That's all it is. That's all it is. David didn't feel like he was in prison. I never feel like I'm in prison because I'm encircled by the love of God and the eternal heart of God. And I understand at all times his hand is upon me. He never takes his hand off of me and he'll never take his hand off of you. Jesus echoed these same words over in the New Testament in the book of John, chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. (laughs) We saw that this morning. My sheep. One, two, three, four. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow my voice. In other words, he said, wherever I go, my sheep are following me. And the good news is Jesus said, I go to the Father. So guess what? We go to the Father. Jesus said, I'm going to sit down next to the right hand of the Father. Guess what? We get to sit down at the right hand of the Father. Wherever he goes, the sheep follow him. And we get to go right to the Father, the majestic, awesome Father who loves you more than anything in this whole world could love you. My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now watch what he says. He says, I give them eternal life. I don't know how we can mess this up and think we can have eternal life one moment and not have eternal life the next. Did Jesus say, I give you eternal life? Did he say, I give you conditional life there? Did he say, I give you temporary life? No, he said, I give you eternal life. Oh, I love that. And he said, and they shall never perish. Never perish. Not one, not even once, never at all. Not perish. They shall never perish. And then he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why will no one snatch them out of the hand? Because of Psalm 139, verse 5. You've encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. And Jesus was saying, there ain't no way you can pry open the fingers of my daddy and remove somebody from my daddy's hand. There ain't no way that's going to happen. And then he echoes it again. He said, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. The same hand that daddy reached down into the pit with to save us is the very same hand that he has placed on us. Friends, we are caught in the grip of grace. And no way to get out of it. Daddy holds on to you tight. What kind of grace are we talking about? We're talking about a sufficient grace. Now I love this because the word sufficient means as much as needed. Not just enough, as much as needed. In other words, he's saying, I don't care what situation you find yourself in, you're going to have enough grace, whether it's a financial situation, whether it's a health situation, whether it's a relational situation, whether it's a situation pertaining to ministry. He said, you are going to find that my grace is sufficient for every situation that you find yourself in. I have a sufficient grace. The Apostle Paul knew about this sufficient grace. Oh, did he ever know it? He knew it better than anybody in the world other than Jesus himself. He had the greatest revelation of this grace. And he says this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. He said, I know what it is to be in need. And he said, I know what it is to have plenty. He's talking about the extremes again. He said, I know what it's like to be on the mountaintop. 
Oh, I've been there. But he said, I also know what it's like to be in the valleys. And he said, the grace that took me to the mountaintop, essentially, is the same grace that will carry me through the valley if I have to walk through it. He said, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Do you hear his heart here? He's saying, listen, my attitude is not going to be based upon whether or not I feel like my needs are being met. He said, I know what it's like to have nothing. I know what it's like to have everything. I know what it's like to be on the mountain. I know what it's like to be in the valley of the shadow of death. He said, I find this contentment. How could he say that? Because a sufficient grace was working in his heart. And he understood and he received it and he embraced this sufficient grace. And then he unleashes, friends, probably one of the most awesome scriptures of the New Testament. We all have this one memorized, don't we? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. In other words, what he was saying, there is nothing that's going to hinder me because I understand there's a grace that is sufficient for every situation I have to walk through. And I just go, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, you know? That was his heart. In other words, the Apostle Paul was saying, there's a sufficient grace found only in Christ. He was saying, I am thankful that I don't have a silver spoon hanging out of my mouth. Or you might say, sure, that's easy for you to say. No, the Apostle Paul came to know God's sufficient grace, even in the midst of absolute hardship and persecution, and then ultimately death, all for the sake of ministering the unconditional and the sufficient grace of God. The majority of believers will not dispute the words saving grace. If you think that you have been saved by anything but his saving grace, you are absolutely mistaken. And I want to draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 where the Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Look at that. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. You say, what's the gift of God? Grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's the gift of God, friends. But not only is grace the gift of God, salvation is the gift of God. What did grace do? Let us write to salvation. For by grace are you saved. But not only is grace and salvation the gift of God, but faith. Faith is the gift of God. You see, the Bible says that every man's been measured the measure of faith. Where'd that faith come from? Came from God, right? So anything that comes from God's got to come as a gift. He gave us the very faith to save us. I'm going to tell you another thing that's a gift from God is the fact that we didn't help. We don't look at it like that. We just go, oh yeah, look at that grace, man. I'm saved by grace. Yeah, but grace was a gift. Salvation was a gift. Faith was a gift. And the fact that you didn't help was a gift all by itself. Because if you helped with this grace, then you would have to help maintain this. And that's why I love about this scripture. He says, not of yourselves. And then he says, it is the gift of God. You see, Abraham is the father of faith. Sarah is the mother of grace, right? And when those two came together, you know what they did? They produced the promise, the promised child, and that child was Isaac. Hallelujah. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9 says, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by Friends, I want to tell you something. There's nothing hazy about that scripture right there. Righteousness happens in an instant. The moment we place our trust in Jesus' death 
and burial and resurrection, our sins, past, present, and future, are taken away, and he remembers them no more. We come into this relationship with God through his saving grace. In an instant, we become as pure as our nail-driven and thorn-pierced Savior. That is the saving grace of God. And then, of course, there is amazing grace. Oh, we rejoice with the truths found in the lyrics of amazing grace. Amazing grace! How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You know that hymn this year turns 245 years old. You see, when it was originally written, it was written in some preacher's sermon. It wasn't a song when it was originally written. It was written as a sermon to make a point in his sermon. And then a few years later, someone said, man, that could be a song. And we've been singing it for almost 250 years. 10 million times a year, that song, Amazing Grace, is performed worldwide. And that's 27,397 times every single day, somewhere, somehow, Amazing Grace is being echoed out there because it is still as amazing as it was 250 years ago, and it will forever be Amazing Grace. I'm telling you, one song that will never go out because His grace is always amazing. We sang about it. His grace amazes me. Oh, hallelujah. Through the truths revealed in that hymn, we discover from beginning to end, it has always been about His saving and His amazing grace. So we don't have a problem with saving grace, and we don't have a problem with amazing grace, so we like singing that. But trying to get the body of Christ to trust in His sufficient grace, well, no, that's another story. And it can be a little bit more of a challenge. I'm going to tell you why. It's because of the way religion has calibrated us. Oh, religion will agree that His grace is amazing. Religion will agree that His grace saves us. But religion refuses to believe that His grace is sufficient enough to keep us safe. Religion won't believe that. The sufficient grace that I'm speaking about right now originated in the heart of God. Did you know He is known as El Shaddai? That's a name of God. El Shaddai. See, we don't pick it up because when we read our Bible, we're not reading the Hebrew Bible. We just read the name God or we just read the name Lord. And we miss that underneath those words right there are the original Hebrew. And there's many different expressions of God. But underneath that one is El Shaddai. It means the all-sufficient one. See, the sufficiency began in God. So he has no choice but to have a sufficient grace. Can you imagine a sufficient God that doesn't have a sufficient grace? That'd make no sense at all. He's the all-sufficient one. We have a sufficient grace because we have an all-sufficient God. You see, the Bible says that we weren't sufficient in ourselves to save ourselves. Our sufficiency is in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. The Apostle Paul said, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers, look what he says, of a new covenant. What is that covenant? That's that covenant of grace. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
Old Covenant religion has calibrated our hearts and minds to believe things that are simply not true. When the president of a bank retires or leaves his position, he's fired, whatever it may be, I want you to know everything changes. The combination to the vault changes, the alarm code changes. His email passwords are deleted. He can no longer access the computer system. And the lock on the front door and the doors of that building are absolutely replaced. Here's a question. How confusing would it be if you walked into a bank and the new president sitting behind the desk had the nameplate of the former president? That'd be a little confusing. Wouldn't it be weird why they would even want to do something like that? It's that same way when we mix the old covenant with the new covenant. It's like leaving Moses' name on Jesus' desk. I mean, if you knew Jesus personally, and he was your banker, and you walked in, and he had Moses' name sitting there, you'd be like, what's up, Jesus? It brings confusion, and it sets us up for extreme disappointment and deep discouragement. The combination of do this and don't do that in an effort to please God with our performance was discarded. Moses' name plate was removed. Friends, let me tell you something. The key to the door and the lock to the door was not just changed. The whole door was changed. I mean, you talk about extreme. I mean, I've never heard of a president or a manager leaving a company and they changed the whole door. They always changed the lock. But in this case here, the door changed. John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. What was Jesus saying? He was saying Moses died. Trying to gain your father's acceptance through anything but his saving and amazing and sufficient grace is like asking a grave digger to open Moses' grave. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor, and to this day no one knows where Moses' grave is. It's kind of odd that we would know where Jesus' sepulcher is, but not Moses's. Perhaps it was designed that way to say, let's not dig him up, Okay. You know, I love what Andrew Farley says. He always says, flirting with Moses is cheating on Jesus. It really is. We don't need to look to Moses. We look to Christ. Christ is our sufficiency. We have all sufficiency through Christ. He's the one that makes us sufficient ministers of what? A new covenant. Moses died. The door has been replaced. And that door is Jesus Christ. Our thoughts, our actions, and our words expose the struggle with trusting in His sufficient grace. You watch anybody, you listen to them long enough, usually you'll hear it in the words. You can tell if they're trusting in His sufficient grace. Just listen to the words, it won't take very long, and you'll find out if they're trusting in His sufficient grace. When we don't trust in His sufficient grace to carry us through the storms of life that we face, the tyrants like worry and fear and doubt and guilt and shame and condemnation will manifest in our lives. When we are not trusting in His sufficient grace, those will manifest in your life. The deepest pit that God rescued us from, it was the pit of sin. 
every other pit in life is just a pothole compared to the Grand Canyon of sin that Daddy redeemed us from. In other words, His saving, amazing, and sufficient grace was payment in full to redeem us from the pit. David talked about that pit in Psalm chapter 103, verses 1 through 4. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefit. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. He redeems your life from destruction. Other versions say, He redeems your life from the pit. He redeems your life from the grave. He redeems your life from destruction and crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. That word loving kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. It means the grace of God. It literally says he redeems your life from destruction and crowns you with grace and tender mercy. I don't know what it is, but we have a fascination with crowns. Everyone likes to wear a crown. From the homecoming king to the homecoming queen to the queen of England, to Miss USA, to Miss America, to Miss Universe, even to the little boy in the middle who was a little boy we met in Nicaragua. That was the crown that I was wearing as we played Jesus in a drama over there and saw people come to Christ. And I packed that all up in my little bag one day and had it outside the building, and we were in there ministering for a little while, and I came out, and that little guy was standing against the building wearing the crown that I just portrayed Jesus in. We have a fascination with crowns. We all want to be crowned. And God said, I crown them with loving kindness. I crown you with grace and tender mercy. Mankind likes crowns. But this is not the kind of crown that David was writing about when he declared that God crowns us with loving kindness or when God crowns us with grace and tender mercies. The crown that David was talking about comes from the Hebrew word atar. Atar. And this is literally what it means in circle with protection. When the Bible says that God crowns us with grace, he said that grace will encircle you. That grace will put its arms around you and protect you. We're talking about an eternal perspective. Don't just think about just the natural here. Think bigger. Think higher. He's talking about eternal perspective here. Psalm 139 verse 5, you have encircled me, you have placed your hand on me. Psalm 103 verse 4, again he says, he redeems your life from destruction and crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. As I was meditating on that scripture, occasionally the Holy Spirit will take me, he'll just nudge me and go, would you like to see where that comes up for the first time in scripture? Would you like to see where that word comes up for the first time, the word redeems? Would you like to see where that comes up for the first time? The word redeem comes from the Hebrew word gael, gael. It literally means to buy back. It's where we get the Hebrew word goel. Goel is the kinsman redeemer. And gael means to redeem. It literally means to purchase. It means to buy out of slavery is what it means. And the first time this word comes up, this redeem word in the Bible, is in the storyline of Israel blessing his son Joseph's two sons. In other words, Israel blessing his two grandchildren. This is the first time it comes up. And see how this is important to our covenant and our blessing and the protection that God has put on us. Genesis chapter 48, verses 8 through 20. It says, When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? 
Now, when it says he saw, Israel was pretty much blind at this point in time. So if he saw anything, it would have just been shadows. It says, when Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so that I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So he can see shadows. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. Friends, that's sufficient grace at work. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knee. In other words, he pulled them back off of Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand and brought them close to him. Now, I want to say this. Joseph knew exactly what the protocol was. Joseph was seeking the right hand of blessing, and the right hand of blessing always belonged to the oldest child, the firstborn, the firstborn son. So when Joseph lined his two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, up in front of daddy, there was no mistake. He knew his daddy's right hand, and he lined up his firstborn, Manasseh, in front of his daddy's right hand. Now, there's no way that Israel could have known which one was the older. He could hardly see. But something began to happen. And again, this is how important it is to flow in the Spirit. Because when you flow in the Spirit, sometimes you do things and you say things. You go, wow, I must have just missed it. That seemed really weird. That seemed really odd. He was even being moved by the Spirit then. The right hand of blessing was only given one time. So if it was given once, it could never be given again. And whatever that Father pronounced over you, that would be carried on. The Bible says that Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head. In order to do that, he literally would have had to cross over like this because Ephraim was on his left. And said, though he was the younger and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Do you see the type and shadow of the cross? How would he have known? These are things that we can look back and we can say, oh, I see. We become the firstborn too of Christ who was your firstborn. We become the firstborn because we're in Christ and that right hand of blessing, it comes on us. You see, God does things differently. The Bible says his ways are not our ways, neither his thoughts our thoughts. As high as his thoughts and ways are above ours, so are the heavens of the earth. This is not a new thing. You have Adam's two first kids, Cain and Abel. Who got the blessing? It was Abel. Abel was not the firstborn. Cain was. You have Ishmael, which was the firstborn of Abraham. And then you have Isaac. Isaac was not the firstborn, but yet Isaac was the blessed child. You have Esau and Jacob. Esau came out first. Jacob came out holding his heel. Esau was entitled to the blessing, but Jacob is the one who got it. And then you have someone like David. David is not only the second one in line, David's the eighth one in line. He's the last of the sons, but it's not the first son, it's not the second son, not the third son, it's David. You see, in God's economy, his sufficient grace is not dispensed based upon entitlements and traditions. It's based upon Jesus' sacrifice 
on the cross and he releases that sufficient grace. But Israel reached out his right hand, put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, look at those words, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys. Do you notice it doesn't say an angel? It says the angel. That is the pre-incarnate Christ right there. He says, listen, may the angel who has redeemed, how did he redeem us? He redeemed us according to Galatians chapter 3.13 by becoming a curse on the cross. He redeemed us once and for all. That word redeem right there is that same Hebrew word, gael. It literally means to buy back. When David was saying he redeems us from the pit and he crowns us with grace and tender mercies, David was saying, I see from start to finish, he's got his arms around me. He's encircled me, eternally circled me. And then he says this, May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. When Joseph saw his father place in his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. I want to tell you something, this was bold. I knew better to ever reach out and take my daddy's hand off anything, or my mother's for that matter. If mom had her hands on something, you just let mom do what she's got to do. But Joseph saw this and he thought, well, maybe daddy just can't see. So maybe I need to help daddy here. Listen, God doesn't need any help like that. Jesus didn't need any help to save us. He didn't need any help to keep us. Joseph thought, man, I, I better help daddy here. Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He said, he too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed him that day and said, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And I love how he ended this. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Now remember that he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Let's look at their names. Manasseh means causing to forget. You know, when I think about that, I think about what God has forgotten. If I was only going to think about one thing that God has forgotten, that would be my sins. The Bible says my sins and my lawless deeds, he will remember no more. His son's sacrifice has caused him to forget my sins. Causing to forget that you have to be alarmed when you go through the valley of the shadow of death. And then this Ephraim, I love this, double fruit. His name means double fruit. Double fruit! God has encircled us and also placed his hand on us. That is a double fruit. He's encircled you, put your hand on you, double fruit. God has crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercies. That's a double fruit. Goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. That's a double fruit. Wow. The law of first mention for redeem is connected with the storyline, as you've just seen, of the patriarch Israel, whose name was Jacob at one time. And here's what I love. He pronounced an irreversible blessing over Ephraim. 
Joseph's offspring, and Joseph is a type and shadow of Christ. That Joseph in the Bible, he is a type and shadow. He is a reflection of Jesus himself. Everyone in your seed, I'm telling you right now, just like Ephraim, you're going to be double blessed. There's going to be double fruit. And there is a blessing that's being pronounced over you that can never be reversed. That's so important when the enemy is trying to talk us out of, are you really saved? Aren't you saved? Are you really going to heaven? Aren't you going to heaven? Listen, friends, nothing can change it. Why? Because his hand is on us. He forgets our sins and gives us the double fruit of life and life more abundantly. Now, El Shaddai, which means all sufficient one. This first services in the covenant that God made with Abraham. He was called Abram at the time. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. The word God Almighty, the word God is El, the word Almighty is Shaddai. And when you put them together, when he said, I'm God Almighty, he's saying, I am God Almighty. He says, I am El Shaddai, or I am the all-sufficient one. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless, then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, for your name will be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. All God did when he changed Abram's name is he added the he to it. It used to be Abram, and now it's Abraham. He added the he. The he is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which means grace. So God said, listen, Abraham, I am going to put a sufficient grace inside of you. He did the same thing with Sarah. Her name was Sarai, and he changed it to Sarah. He did the same thing. He added the he, and he says, you are going to be the mother of all grace. And he says, I will make you, watch this, very fruitful, there's your double fruit. He said, I'm going to make you very fruitful, Abram. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant. I love this as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Why is it important to know that God is the all-sufficient one? Because there are going to be times in life when we are going to find ourselves in a wilderness, whether it's a bed of our own making or not, looking for a way out is not always the right response. Looking for his sufficient grace in the midst of these issues of life, now that's the heart of the Father. So often we have this propensity to look for the way out instead of looking for him. Look, where's the way out? It's like a burning building. I know in a case like that you want to find the way out. Paul's heart was trained to look for the sufficiency of Christ in the middle of these situations, looking for his sufficient grace in the midst of these issues of life. Now that is the heart of the Father. Without that, sometimes we produce a wrong image of Daddy, and I will tell you what happens. If you get a wrong image of Daddy, you know what it will do? It will produce disappointment. Because if you expect God to always move on your timeline, you're going to end up disappointed. You ever met a disappointed Christian? Oh, yeah, come on. We've all been there, haven't we? And we know people that are more disappointed than others. And what happens is if we don't deal with disappointment, day after day we're disappointed because things are not working as fast as we think they ought to, then what happens is disappointment will lead to discouragement. 
See, there's a deeper thing. I'm not just disappointed. Disappointed, go, oh man, I'm disappointed about something because I had a wrong expectation. I was looking always for a way out when I should have been looking to the sufficiency of Christ. I should have been looking to the sufficiency of Him in the midst of all those valleys. When you go through disappointment and then discouragement sets in, I want to tell you what will happen, and I've seen this as a pastor, then disillusionment will raise its ugly face. You become disillusioned. Suddenly you begin to lose your focus in life. You become disillusioned. And then it will lead to despondency. Despondency is this, I mean numbness, if you will. Despondency is a hopelessness. It's a hopelessness, and it will rob you of the promise that Jeremiah spoke of in Jeremiah 29, 11, when he said, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. This is God, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a hope and a future. God is saying, listen, keep this verse before you because I'm always thinking good things about you. It doesn't matter what you're going through. I'm always thinking and I am working on your behalf. So having a correct image of daddy is so important. Having a correct image of this covenant. Get that old covenant out of the way. Get Moses' nameplate off the desk. Jesus' rightful name belongs there. And always looking to him for our sufficiency. Not to us. We are not sufficient in ourselves, the Bible says. We are sufficient as ministers only because of what Christ has done on the cross. Jeremiah 31 verse 3. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. That word kindness right there is also the Hebrew word grace. Chesed. Jeremiah said, The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Unfailing kindness is about as close as you can get in the Old Covenant to saying sufficient grace. Sufficient grace only comes up one time in the Bible. It only comes up there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 one time. But if we look back in the Old Covenant, we look back in the Old Testament, and we go, man, where's sufficient grace? I mean, it's all over in concepts and principles and stuff like that. But that's as close as you can get because something that doesn't fail is sufficient, right? It's sufficient to always work. And that word kindness is hesed, which means the grace of God. Unfailing, sufficient kindness or grace. Friends, the only kind of grace there is is unfailing sufficient grace. We first encounter this unfailing sufficient grace when we are in the deepest wilderness of life. This sufficient grace is not only designed to save us and to amaze us, but his sufficient grace comes to bring rest in the midst of our storms. Jeremiah 31.3 again, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness or another way to say it, I have drawn you with sufficient grace. Now, how could Jeremiah say that? We're in verse 3. Let's look at the first two verses before that, okay? Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 1 and 2. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace. Where'd they find it at? In the wilderness! 
Oh, man, you can brag and you can boast when you find grace when you're on top of the mountain. Look at the way the Lord is blessing me. But I'm going to tell you something. When you find grace in the midst of your wilderness, now you have found something there when you find grace. And that's quite frankly, most of the time where I find grace is right there in the midst of the dry time, right there in the midst of the wilderness, right there in the midst of painful situations and circumstances of life. That's when I recognize grace. That's when I appreciate grace. That's when I let his arms wrap around me and encircle me and realize, yes, daddy, your hand is upon me. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. You know, grace and rest belong together. You find one, you're going to find the other. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, again, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with sufficient grace. The words sufficient grace come from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. And if you'll go home and you'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you're going to find it was no cakewalk for the Apostle Paul. He faced things that not a person in this room, probably none of us all combined, have faced. He faced the issues of life. And you know what? On top of that, he had this thorn that the Bible talks about in his flesh. He had a thorn in his flesh. And historians and scholars have debated for years what that thorn was. Some think he couldn't see very well. Some think he walked with a limp. Some think, you know, different things and stuff. I don't think there's any one of those. I mean, it tells you right after the comment, it says, a messenger of Satan. That was his thorn. It wasn't just some sort of ailment. Are you kidding me? I mean, the guy gets stoned. He gets up and goes back in the city and spends the night. I mean, he's not worried about a little pain here and there and stuff like that. Here's where it comes up. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. But he said to me, you see, because the Apostle Paul is crying out, Lord, take away this thorn. And he, and he cried out on three occasions. Lord, take away this thorn. I can't stand it anymore. I want to be on the mountaintop. I don't want to be in this valley. And what was God's response? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, in other words, my ability, my ability is made perfect in weakness. I don't need your strength. I don't need your contribution. You need mine. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Oh, the Apostle Paul got it. He said, well, then bring it on. If I'm strong when I'm weak, I want to go around bragging about how weak I am. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My closing story. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there lived a man by the name of Frederick Booth Tucker. Frederick served as a senior Salvation Army officer. His father-in-law was the one who founded the Salvation Army. And Frederick was preaching in Chicago one day, and out of the throng of people came forth a man, and that man stood there and he said before the entire audience, he said, you can talk all you want about how dear Christ is to you, and how he graces you. 
But if your wife was dead, as my wife is, and you had babies crying for their mother who will never come back, you could never say what you're saying. You could never say that. Silence fell in the heart of Frederick Booth Tucker. Sometimes shortly after that, Frederick lost his wife in a train wreck. Her body was brought to Chicago and carried to the Salvation Army barracks for the funeral service. After the ministers had concluded the funeral service, Frederick remained. Looking down into the silent face of his wife and the mother of his children, he said these words to the Holy Spirit. He said, the other day when I was here, a man said to me, I could not say that Christ's grace was sufficient if my wife were dead and my children were crying for their mother. Holy Spirit, if that man is here, tell him, tell him that Christ is sufficient. My heart is all broken. My heart is all crushed. My heart is all bleeding, but there is a song in my heart, and Christ put it there. And if that man is here, I tell him that though my wife is gone and my children are motherless, Christ's grace comforts me today. Well, friends, that man was there. And down the aisle he came and fell down beside the casket and said, Verily, 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 he said, If Christ can help us like that, I will surrender to him. You see, when you were going through a tough time in life and you thought it was all about you, God was working something for a greater cause because he's an all-sufficient God and your needs are being met sometimes by the needs of others. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the scriptures are these. Grace is not released just to catapult us to the highest mountaintop. Grace is dispensed to carry us through the valley of the shadow of death. Grace encircles us and won't take his hand off of us. Grace supplies contentment in every and any situation we face. Grace introduces us to the all-sufficient one. His name is Jesus, the one that loves us with an eternal love. What kind of grace am I talking about? I'm talking about a saving grace. I'm talking about an amazing grace. But most of all, I am speaking about a sufficient grace. Daddy, I want to thank you for that sufficient grace. And that sufficient grace has set up like a king in my heart. I want to thank you that the king wears the crown. I don't need my own crown. You have already crowned me, Daddy. You've supplied all this wonderful grace. And Daddy, help me sometimes to understand and get a right perspective so that I don't become disappointed, so that I don't become discouraged, so that I don't become disillusioned, so that I don't become despondent and lose my hope that Jeremiah talked about when he said, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a hope and a future. Daddy, I thank you. I thank you that I find such joy I find such joy 
understanding that my sufficiency is not in me. The Apostle Paul said it right when he said, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. In Jesus' name, amen.